Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Penny Williams. Penny is the CEO of Kenwood Trust, a charity based in Kent, helping those affected by addiction, homelessness and crime. Um, Penny, welcome and thank you for joining us. No, thank you. It's good to see you again. Um, it's not, of course, uh, the first time, Penny, that you've joined us on the show, as you say there. And uh, last time we spoke on this programme was around about a year ago. And all this time later, we're still living under some form of social restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic, aren't we? So I think it would be a good place to start addressing that elephant in the room first. Um, looking back <laughs> over sort of this last year by and large, just how has all of this affected you and your organisation, would you say? Well, yes, um, uh, it's a year that uh, no one will forget and it has you know, changed all our lives in so many ways. Um, I think uh, for Kenwood Trust, we are just um, you know, so pleased that we managed to keep the virus uh, off the site. Um, the staff have been absolutely amazing. I mean, we've all been learning as we go along, um, as indeed, you know, all governments across the world have been really, and uh, accepting those challenges and putting the protocols in place that keeps everyone safe. Um, from a business point of view, you know, we're a charity that then uh, could no longer fundraise, um, so that it is quite hard. Uh, but good to see the government uh, putting more money towards homelessness and uh, and helping people with addiction. So we uh, we certainly had uh, people staying with us for longer, and that's uh, that's been a positive from the, the the cycle of the pandemic. And we still continue with our protocols as we uh, are still obviously seeing some increases in variants and uh, and infection rates, but. Uh, Yes, it's been a very uh, challenging 12 months and the staff have risen to the challenge, but uh, we're all quite tired, I can't lie. Mm. And of course, we're in limbo that little bit longer now, aren't we? Um, just for the listeners tuning into this, we are recording on the morning of 22nd of June 2021. And of course, the proposed initial Freedom Day of June 21st, which was yesterday, has now been pushed back by four weeks. So we're still in limbo a little bit. Uh, we don't know, of course, whether that is going to go ahead or be pushed back once again. Um, but given the way that you're operating at the moment, Penny, with some restrictions still in place, of course, um, are you looking forward to being able to do more once that date does come around, hopefully as planned? Yes, indeed. I mean, like, like many um, uh, residential uh, rehab centres, we've um, been able to run a quarantine uh, area. So we've been using one of our buildings to uh, enable us still to take people in. They stay in quarantine for 10 days and then can join the main group once. Um, the, the relaxations um, enable us to live more normally although we will probably continue with la lateral flow testing um, for many months yet it does 
potentially allow us to either reduce the quarantine days um, or longer term, hopefully, um, no longer need the quarantine, in which case we can then use that um, building to um, help more people. And that obviously then helps the, the charity as well. So that's our next step. Um, and we're hopeful that um, the government have received the Carol Black report. And with everything that's happened during the pandemic, there was a rise in alcohol consumption before. And obviously mm. during the last 12 months, that has uh, there's a lot of research to so say that's increased. So our services are very much going to be in need over, over the next few years. And we hope that there will be more government funding coming coming our way. That's exactly the issue, isn't it? The impact of ongoing intermittent lockdowns, it increases the rates of people that are turning to drinking, that are turning to drug use, and ultimately their financial status suffers as well because of the state of the labour market. And it does put much more of a strain on services such as yours as well. And we expected perhaps as the first lockdown was ending, that in maybe sort of the latter stages of 2020, we'd see increased demand on services such as those that you offer, Penny. Did you see that happening back in 2020, that sort of demand was increasing and now you're expecting that to happen again as we sort of move into another recovery phase? Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, we we deal with um, people that are funded um, by local government, but we also um, help those that um, don't qualify and have to self-fund themselves. And we've, we've started to see an increase in that. Um, and you're right, I think the pressures on life um, are starting to take its toll. Um, people have been definitely drinking more during the, the various lockdowns. Um, and I suppose the demand for our service has, has always been high. It's just the funding has, has been reduced over particularly the last 10 years. Um, so going forward, uh, our services will be needed and we will hopefully be able to do some fundraising as well now going mm. forward. And something that, of course, you are looking to expand with some real enthusiasm is the educational offering that you sort of roll out to residents um, at the Kenwood Trust, uh, because uh, in a very changing sort of labour market landscape, um, people are needing to sort of upskill and maybe move across into different sectors, aren't they? And that's going to help a lot of people become job ready when they sort of move out of sort of that rehabilitation stage and be able to reintegrate more effectively into society. Yeah, I think the um, review we've done of our organisation over the last 12 months and, you know, talking to uh, other partners, um, we're moving far more towards, um, as you say, making people job ready, but also um, good citizens for future landlords. So the, the ongoing journey for um, our residents that come to us initially for uh, 12 to 24 week programs um, to help them with their addiction. Uh, we then have move on houses so that they can live in the community and we can help that education piece, help people train. One of our re re um, residents recently has um, retrained as an HGV driver. Um, and, you know, in the job market, generally we're seeing at the moment there's a, there's a, a lack of um, employees for the hospitality sector following everything that's happened. 
So that's very much our vision is to develop our education um, building and services that can provide increased um, help for both our stage one residents, but also then uh, those in our resettlement programme. And you mentioned right at the beginning as well that you've learned an awful lot from your experience of managing through the pandemic. What are some of the mm. key learnings you'd say that you've sort of taken away from this quite challenging period? Um, I think that, as I say, we're, we're a charity and uh, so uh, fundraising has always been an important part of what we do. Um, challenging for us because we're not a charity that is uh, what I would describe as sort of warm and fluffy. Um, and there's many charities that in front of us that, that people maybe associate more with. Um, so we've had to look at new ways to um, generate income to bridge the gap between the state funding that we receive and actually the costs of running the, the facilities. So it's, um, I suppose in many ways it's helped us look at our, our services as, a, as, a, as an overall um, where we can apply for more grants and then actually developing more value and developing the education side of what we do so that we have um, a better offering as well. So I think it's been, it's been in many ways, um, an opportunity to, to reboot almost um, and look at how we can um, encourage more people into the sector. Mm. Uh, staffing is always a challenge for um, these types of um, organisations and uh, developing our volunteer base because as a charity volunteers are so important to us. Yes exactly and I think there's been quite a lot of enthusiasm for the voluntary sector and indeed sort of key Mm. services over this uh, sort of past 14 months because Mm. we've seen more than ever people coming together and delivering for their communities really bringing out the best in themselves so there could be something to really cash in on for the charitable sector there in sort of bringing people in. Yes yeah, very much so. I would agree with that. And and for us, um, we developed a, a, a commercial side um, in uh, Kenwood Place. So it's a, a visitor attraction where you can do um, archery. We've got a cafe, um, disc golf and uh, alpaca walks. And that generates good income for us. And I think you're right. People have um, had the opportunity to look more at, at, at um supporting services like ours and look at ways to to um, help us raise funds and um, although the commercial side um, had to close during the pandemic as we reopen we've seen a, a surge of interest um, which has been really really helpful that's really positive and I can imagine that some of the staff working on that side of the uh, the charity as well you're sort of looking forward to sort of having those back in full flow as well because it's been sort of yeah. a tough time from that point of view people of course being furloughed and having to take that time away and moving forward, Penny, if um, we could sort of pretend we do have a crystal ball for a moment, even though there is still some uncertainty, understandably so, around July the 19th going ahead as planned, if we do go ahead and leave social restrictions behind, where ideally would you like the Kenwood Trust to be this time in a year, just before we do wrap things up? Um, our, our goals for the next, um, well, 12 to 24 months really is to develop more accommodation for our resettlement. Um, that includes um, developing our homeless project, um, but also as, as people come through 
our doors in our stage one project, <clears throat> which is the residential rehab, that we have more accommodation for them to continue their journey of recovery with us. So um, that's our main focus, along with developing, um, hopefully, income with Kenwood Place and the um, consumer activities and business, actually, because we have a conference centre and offices that we are renting out. Again, lots of companies are downsizing, and we're hoping that um, they will consider some of our smaller offices that we have for rent um, because it's an important income for us. So that's uh, that's our main focus really for the next two years. Plenty to focus on then over the course of the coming months and indeed years, as you say there, Penny. And I do wish you all the luck in the world there. And as we hopefully sort of get a bit more certainty on the social restriction situation and we start to move into that post-COVID world more decisively, get an idea of what shape the economic recovery is taking as well. I'd love to catch up and have you even back on the show for a third time just to sort of see how you're sort of surviving and hopefully thriving in that post-COVID world. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm really hopeful and keeping my fingers crossed that there's some positive news for you. And I'm sure all of the listeners are sharing that sentiment uh, with me as well. And also, Penny, um, since we're not quite out of the woods just yet, but I'm confident better days are coming, do continue, please, to take care and stay safe with all that is still going on. Many thanks indeed. It was a pleasure to welcome Penny Williams, CEO of Kenwood Trust, back onto the programme today. Um, Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, 
therefore they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment 
of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can 
have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on 
the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world except for the very poor has been the distribution of food a lot of it on computerized uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down we'd be in real trouble so i think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well so have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need 
careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, 
presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.